Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. And saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked upon his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. With the help of the Lord, I'm going to be speaking on this subject. Can you see clearly? Can you see clearly? Amen. You may be seated. This story in this gospel of Mark is very fascinating to me. First, before I get into the word and the story, let's briefly, for everyone to be on the same page, let's briefly introduce the Gospel of Mark to us. So the Gospel of Mark is heavily theorized to be the first of the synoptic Gospels to be written, the synoptic Gospels being Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all being written before the book of John. If you want to study this deeper, the theological term is called Mark in Priority. In the book of Mark, you don't get... The Christmas story, you don't get the birth of Jesus. It's not retold in this gospel like it is in Matthew or Luke. But instead, it immediately starts out with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark portrays Jesus on a mission, almost as if he's in a hurry, if you will. It gets straight to the point. This is why you see words like immediately and straightway appearing over and over while you're reading through this gospel. In the first chapter alone, if you have your Bibles, you can quickly look, and there are so many miracles. If you, if you look in the first chapter alone, it's like miracle after miracle, and miracle here, miracle there, miracle, miracle, miracle. We understand that each miracle serves a purpose. Each miracle is serving as a lesson to the reader. The Gospel of John also tells us that all the works that Jesus did, if they were to be written one by one, all the miracles that if all the miracles that he did, if they were to be written one by one, that the world itself could not contain the works, the books that would be written. This tells us every time scripture stops and gives us details in these stories, each time you see a miracle recorded in scripture, it's serving a purpose. The details in the story are trying to teach the reader a lesson. And yes, we understand that in a general sense, miracles serve the purpose of furthering or enhancing the kingdom of God and so that he can get the glory. But in this story in Mark 8, we have a deeper purpose. So let's go, let's re, let's go over the story again. We see a specific blind man story found in Mark 8. First of all, it's unique only to this book. Uh, this specific blind man story is not found in the other gospels. There are some who say, uh, if you guys remember in John 9, where you have Jesus spitting on the ground and making clay and mud and then applying it to the man's eyes. There are some skeptics that say that is the same story with different details, but in the scholarly world, this has pretty much been disproven when 
looking at key details geographically. So the story in Mark 8, the blind man's story in Mark 8 and the blind man's story in John 9 are, in fact, two different events, moments, and stories. I don't, have talk, I don't really have time to talk about how they are different stories, but that's really a different sermon. So let's review this specific blind man's story that we just read. You see, Jesus, who has love in him and the fullness of God in him, having been given all the power in heaven and in earth, as we see from uh, the Great Commission, has a do-over, if you will. He has to have a double take. He lays his hands on the man a second time, this second time fully healing him. This, this first time we are told that he spits on the man's eyes and that he places his hands upon this blind man. After he places his hands on this blind man, he asks him if he sees anything, to which this blind man responds, I see men as trees walking. This blind man's perception was a little off. It was a little bit hazy, if you will. What, so what happened? It wasn't a complete miracle at first, but it was a partial, he, he saw partially, it was a partial miracle. So, so as I mentioned, Jesus lays his hands upon, again upon this blind man, and this second time it fully heals him. The second time he sees clearly. What is the significance of this story? What is the impact here? Why is this not only the why is this the only progressive healing miracle we find, not only in the book of Mark, but in the entire New Testament? No, what I'm not trying to say is that Jesus had an off day. I'm not trying to say that he lacked any faith. I'm not even trying to say that this blind man lacked any faith. We're not given in scripture an indication as, as we see. It's not, we don't see, we don't see it like in a different story, different blind man story with Bartimaeus, where according to your faith, be it unto you. There is not that in this story. So what purpose does this relaying on of hands and then him fully seeing serve? What is the intent for the reader here? That is the question. Here it is. This story serves as an effect that the man's physical blindness serves as a lesson for the apostle's spiritual blindness. How many know that we are not only blind sometimes physically, but we can be blind in the heart. We can have spiritual blindness, if you will. Amen. So the purpose, like I mentioned, of this story serves as an effect, as a contrast between the man's physical blindness and the apostle's spiritual blindness. Later on, we see they had a hazy, a blurry, a little cloudy picture of the Christ that we find later in the same chapter. So that's what we're speaking on tonight, seeing clearly. So we have to take context and the, from the text into consideration to find the theological significance of this story. Just before the blind man story in Mark 8, we have where Jesus feeds a second multitude, this one being less prominent than the first. Two chapters before Mark 8, we have Jesus feeding the multitude of the 4,000. You may remember in Mark 6, the multitude of the 5,000, which is more prominent, it's more known to us because that multitude of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels, whereas this second multitude that Jesus feeds is only recorded in two Gospels, I believe. Jesus is trying to explain in this story, right before the blind man, uh, he's trying to compare the physical leaven of the Pharisees we see and the physical leaven of, of Herod and how it's different than the spiritual leaven, that he is the provider. We see immediately after, however, 
the story of the blind man. So you have the story of the multitude of the 4,000 starting off in chapter 8. The blind man's story, then the second story where Jesus, Jesus and his disciples go into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, by the way, it would have been 15 miles north of the Sea of Galilee for reference. On the way into this town, Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? To which his disciples answer, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and another, a prophet. But then Jesus poses this question to his disciples, who do men, or he asks him, but who do you say that I am? To which, G, uh, to which Peter in his boldness declares that thou art the Christ. But you see what this really is, is that Peter's perception, however, was a little bit hazy. It was a little bit blurry, if you will. Because when Jesus talks about what the Christ is, what the Christ, what his mission was, what his purpose was, how he was going to suffer many things, how he was going to be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and the scribes, and then how he was going to be killed, and after three days, how he was going to rise again. Peter had a foggy perception, as it, will, as it was. He was seeing his Messiah as a military king. He thought, oh, no, 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 my Christ is a military king. My Christ is my ticket to victory. My Christ is going to establish us as a great nation. He's thinking to himself, Peter, he's going to make us relevant again. So you can see he got some of the truth, but it wasn't fully there. So when Peter says in his boldness, you are the Christ, he wasn't seeing him for his crucifixion, but rather seeing things in a clouded manner. He wasn't seeing things in a, he was seeing things in a hazy manner. He only saw the truth partially, like I mentioned, but didn't fully understand. So then this is why Jesus looks back on his disciples and rebukes Peter, saying, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of things of man, uh, of God, but of the things of men. This story where Jesus rebukes Peter is also retold in the book of Matthew, if you want to study that more in depth. The disciples at the time of this story could have accepted the truth of Jesus' identity and see clearly, but they did not understand and verbally rejected the plan that followed the revelation of who the Christ was. They didn't understand how Christ would have to suffer rejection and death before being raised up again. Before being raised, rather. They did not understand at the time they too would have to take up their own cross and follow him. Peter at the time of the story sees things from an earthly perspective and not from a heavenly one. <clears throat> Mark portrays Jesus as other than us. You see throughout the gospel of Mark, he's portraying Jesus as the Lord that is the Lord of lords and the king that is the king of kings. Though his disciples' faith was frail and their view of Christ was a little clouded and how they had a dull perception, they later figured it out, if you remember, they, they later realized it when they were reminded on, on the day of Pentecost. So we've all heard this. So, so what's the application, you may ask? We've all heard this saying before. Uh, finish the saying, if, if you will, for me. If at first you don't succeed. That's right. Try, try again. If at first you don't succeed. But I'm here to encourage someone today with a little rebranding of that phrase. If at first you don't get your miracle, and if at first you don't get your breakthrough, if at first you don't get your healing, you can try again. You may be burdened. You may have prayed to this Christ before about a specific situation, 
but I'm here to encourage you. You can simply look again. Allow Christ, if you will, to lay his hands on you a second time like we have in this story. That's the application. Have the faith to pray again. Have the faith to fast again. Have the faith to read again. Have the faith to look again. How many of you guys know that your view or perspective matters? God wants someone to see this clearly, as I felt this when I was praying. Your view of ministry may be unclear. It may be a little bit hazy. It may be a little bit blurry. But let me tell you, no matter your ministry, we are all called to the same things. We are all called to live in submission. We are, we are all called to be moldable. We are all called to put others before ourselves. As one of my professors says, we are all called to live in second place. And the list goes on and on here. We may be purposed for a specific season, but our calling does not change. And I felt this as I was praying. Some of you may be called into a time of temperament, but I'm here to remind someone, and I feel God is trying to get someone to see this clearly, that this time of preparation does not disqualify your calling and the next chapter. Remember that he is the author of your faith, author and finisher of your faith, and that we, also, we say it all the time around here, but remember that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He has the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. And this term here is, in modern Christianity, it's, it's become a little commonplace. It's become a little cliche. What the Alpha and the Omega is, what I feel the Lord wants us to see, a little zoomed-in view on, if you will. So the Alpha and the Omega is the linguistic dynamic, as you know it, uh, beginning and the end time dynamic, uh, first and last ordinal dynamic. And what I mean by that is alpha to the omega, alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet, omega being the last letter of the Greek alphabet, Lingu the, the root word lingua meaning tongue, having to deal with languages. So what is this alpha picture of God, alpha manifestation of God, if you will? In Revelation 4, you have uh, the throne room of God being depicted uh, the same chapter where we got one on the throne, and the, and the, do you remember what they worship him for? They worship him for creation, for thou hast created all things. That's the omega picture of God. That's, or that, that's an alpha picture of God, rather. The omega picture of God is found in Revelation 5, where how do you bring things to an end? The question is, how do you bring it to an end? Revelation 5 is the omega picture of God. We see the omega, a manifestation of God, if you will, who is worthy to loose the seven seals? That is, who is worthy to bring history to its proper conclusion as we know it? So as I mentioned, that's the Alpha and Omega picture of God. Not only when you say he's the Alpha and Omega, are you saying at the same time that he is the beginning and the ending and the first and the last. And not only does it encapsulate or not only does it embody all these elements what you were really saying when he's the Alpha and Omega is that he's the God of all languages, that he is the God of all tongues, that he is the God of all ethnicities, that he has time literally in his hands, and that he is a God throughout, he is the God of all order throughout all of history, throughout all of eternity. Praise God. So now, with that, we're prefacing with that, we're going to fast forward, if you will, to someone in the Bible who saw things clearly in a spiritual sense. Stay with me here. There's going to be a connection at the end I want you guys to, 
discern for yourselves. Fast forward from the Gospel of Mark to the year 52 AD, where Paul writes this found in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Please don't miss this. I want you to see this. Around five or six later, five or six years later, Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians to where he says this, found in Ephesians 3, 8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you see what's happening here? Let's review. In his own view, in his own estimation, he is going from the least of the apostles to five or six years later writing that he is the least of the saints. Here it is. He's saying that he's the least of those who pen scripture to the least of us, God's people. Remember, this this is in his own view of himself. This is in his own estimation. In the last year of his life, he writes a letter to Timothy. And he says this found in 1 Timothy 1.15, and I paraphrase. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. He goes from the least of the apostles to the least of the saints to the least, the biggest, the worst of sinners. But what happened along the way You see, when he said he was the least of the apostles, he talked about how by the grace of God, I am what I am. When he said I was the least of the saints, he talked of the many great mercies, the endless mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he he said I am the chiefest of sinners, in his own estimation, he he pens these words in the Greek, I mean, it's found in 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As Paul grew Lord in his own estimation, God became greater. Don't tell me that the Apostle Paul didn't have a grasp of Scripture. No, no, no. This goes back to the Gospels. Do you remember in John 3.30 where he must increase and I must decrease? Can you see yourself as Paul saw himself? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a gift from God that we take for granted. We have a gift from God that we are spiritually blinded to. Do you want to know what it is? It's your weakness. It's your limitation. Maybe it's the very thing you are praying away. But every time Christ is saying, my grace, it's sufficient for you. Don't see it from an earthly perspective, but see it from a heavenly 
perspective. See it from a heavenly lens, if you will. See it from a heavenly perspective. We need a focused view of this. Do you remember in, do you remember in 2 Corinthians when Paul speaks on the thorn or infirmity of the flesh that was given to him, he says, by a, a messenger of Satan? The leading belief among scholars here is that this thorn or infirmity in the flesh that Paul alludes to is referring to some type of physical blindness or visual impairment. Remember, he asked God that this infirmity would depart from him, to which the Lord responds in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And I paraphrase here. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Oh, the irony. You see, here's the connection. We have back in Mark 8, when Jesus addresses his disciples for not understanding the purpose of the Christ, the mission, the purpose of the Christ. The disciples were not physically blinded here. The disciples were not physically blind here, but they were spiritually blind in the story of Mark 8. Whereas with Paul going off this assumption that he had some type of visual impairment or physical blindness here, he could see clearly in a spiritual sense. I know earlier I said how you can look again, that you can have the faith to pray about a situation again and receive a second touch, if you will. But what if that very thing you are praying about is what God is using as a catalyst for your ministry, just as Paul with this infirmity? Listen, you may see yourself as weak, but know that God sees you as a powerful vessel. You may see yourself as invaluable, invaluable, but God sees you as valuable to his kingdom. You may see yourself as unloved, but God is love and Jesus loves you. You may see yourself as rejected, but know that God sees you as chosen. You may see yourself as worthless, but know that God sees your worth. I'm here to remind someone that you are anointed, you are chosen, and you are called for such a time as this. Amen. Amen. If we could all stand as I'm coming to a conclusion here. Musicians, if you can please come. I hope now that we are reminded that blindness is not always physical, but that we can learn a couple things from blind men in the Bible. Blindness can take place in the heart there may be some areas in our lives to where we may be spiritually blinded to. But I'm here to encourage and declare to you today that you don't have to leave this service carrying the same weights. You don't have to leave this service carrying the same burdens. You don't even have to leave this service without seeing clearly. Maybe for some, it's the very thing you are praying away to where God is trying to get you to have a clearer vision of his sufficient grace in your weakness or infirmity. Whatever the case is, these altars are open. Let's respond to the word of the Lord. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. 
Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you and we hope you have a great week. Thank you.